All right. Good morning to you all uh, on this blessed Lord's Day. Um, my name is Philip. For those of you uh, online, I'm uh, one of the interns here. And uh, thank you for this great privilege to proclaim God's word today. Um, it is a true honor. Um, as you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, uh, verses 1 through 9, uh, if I may set some context, God has made a big promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their descendants that he would be their God and that they would be his people. According to that promise, God has redeemed Israel from Egypt. And in the chapters leading up to our text, God gives the plans for the tabernacle so that he may dwell with his people. But there's a shocking interruption. While Moses is meeting with God atop Mount Sinai, Israel forms a golden calf and breaks faith with God. Now what becomes of God's great promise? Moses steps into the breach, and this is God's response. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And, he's, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if, I've, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. The text we just read is my favorite passage in the entire Bible. In the time of great uncertainty, when many are struggling to find something firm to stand on, what we find in these words is the very solid ground of salvation. And that is this, that God is a promise-keeping God, and he has unchanging character. And because of who he is, we can hope in his promises. Uh, two truths for today's, uh, from today's passage. And the first is this. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. 
Now, when we look upon our world, we find that human commitment is circumstantial. In little things like meeting a friend on time, or in big things like faithfulness in marriage, our promises, our commitment often depend on the conditions. I think a stark illustration of this are endorsement deals with athletes. When an athlete performs at a high level, everyone is happy and the champagne flows. But when their performance is not up to par or they fall from grace, it is amazing to see how fast sponsors flee and reveal their thin loyalty. Now, though our relationships are not like endorsement contracts, there is a sense in which our commitment depends on the other's performance. And when others fail us, we find it hard to love. Now, the Lord faced such a situation in the Exodus. Verse 1 opens with the Lord instructing Moses to cut new tablets of stone and to come back up Mount Sinai to meet with him. This is because Moses broke the first tablets. He broke those tablets because Israel had broken faith with God. They put the Lord to the test. Now God had set his love on Israel and promised to take them as his treasured possession. But how pitiful a treasure they proved to be. Even after being freed from the bondage of slavery, it says in Psalm 78 that they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. And their heart was not steadfast. They were not faithful to his covenant. Despite all of this, God, like a husband to his bride, prepares a covenant ceremony atop Mount Sinai. If you can imagine the scene, the earth is trembling. The mountain is smoking at the awesome presence of the Lord. He calls Moses up, and he makes arrangements for the tabernacle. He writes with his own finger the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the tablets of stone. But Moses doesn't even get down the mountain before Israel annuls the covenant by the golden calf. As my Old Testament professor would like to say, they cheated on God on their wedding night. And Moses' breaking of the tablets symbolized their breaking faith with God. Now, church family, what would you do if you were God? Would you continue to love this obstinate, unfaithful, ungrateful people? Wouldn't you drop the divine hammer? Or in our modern parlance, wouldn't you cancel them right there? I sure would. But how does God respond? He answers Moses' prayer and does not cut off Israel as they deserve. Rather, he gives mercy and grace. Even though he could have poured out his wrath, he restrains his anger. And Israel went after another lover. But the Lord maintains his hesed, his abounding steadfast love, and remains faithful to his covenant. In, or, in other words, God responds according to who he is 
as he is proclaimed in verses 6 and 7. Now, among the Bible verses I could encourage you to memorize, these would be among the top. This is God's declaration of how he wants to be known. And as we will see, these verses will lead you to the gospel, and it will be a balm for your soul. Now, volumes have been written about the attributes of God, and I just wanted to highlight two things today. First, our God is a God we need. We can sometimes think of God as a distant, cold, perfect machine. But his attributes show that he is a personal God that pursues and saves sinners. For example, God is a God of Hannah. If you know anyone named Hannah, it is the Hebrew word for grace. He does not deal with us as we truly deserved, but instead he gives us Hannah, mercy and grace. He is a God long of nose, which is the Hebrew idiom for long-suffering. If you think of a raging bull with his nostrils flared in anger, as Pastor Nate illustrated, God is a... He is slow to anger. He abounds in chesed, a covenant-keeping love, who surely forgives all kinds of sin. And we can go on and on, but the more we know who God is, His attributes, the more we realize he is indeed the Lord we need. Second, God remains true to who he is. Verses 6 to 7 are quoted about 20 times throughout the Bible. Israel was not spared because they caught God on a good day. They received mercy because he remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For example, as quoted in Psalm 86, because of who he is, he always inclines his ear to our cries. Lamentations 3, because of who he is, his mercies never end. They are new every morning. And according to Psalm 103, because of who he is, as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Unlike us, God is not moved by the winds of circumstance. His his redemptive plan does not depend on our performance. Rather, God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. Now, what does that mean for us today in Edmonds, Washington? As you read through the pages of Scripture, as you look back on the story of your lives, is God not who he says he is? Is he not wonderful? Perhaps you're stressed out by the demands of this world, always insisting, what have you done for me lately? You always have to perform at work, perform At school, you have to work so hard for people to like you. Perhaps you're struggling with sin and shame, wondering, can God continue to forgive someone like me? And brothers and sisters, it is good to know that the Lord, the Lord 
is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You don't have to catch him in a good mood, but in Christ, you can go to him. You can go to him at any time because his love for you does not change. And no matter how many times we have failed him, he will never leave us nor forsake us because his promise that he is our God, that we are his people, his promises are guaranteed by who he is. And thus we have a sure hope. This brings us to the second and last truth for today. God's promises are only ours in Jesus Christ. God's promises are only ours in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you have, may have already noticed, there's a seeming paradox in verse 7. How does God forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but not clear the guilty? Or as the NASB has it, how does God forgive sin, but not leave the guilty unpunished? And we know as early as Eden that the wages of sin is death. Now, our culture demands a God of love, but no consequences. A God who sweeps sin under the rug and ignores its costs. But in verse 7, God declares of himself that he is not only a God of forgiveness, but he is a God of justice that demands the satisfaction of every sin. I once heard an illustration from a pastor about a man who goes home to find his home burnt down and his loved one slaughtered. His life was ruined in a single night. In this man's grieving, his one solace is that that criminal was caught and he was going to be brought to justice. After a short trial, judgment day has come. The judge comes out and declares his verdict. Not guilty. He goes on. Despite what he did, he may go free because I am a loving judge, merciful and gracious. Whether one is a Christian or not, we can sense something is wrong here. A judge who does not do justice is as evil as the criminals he sets free. A good God must be just and cannot let sin go unpunished. Now, let's say instead this criminal goes to jail for life to pay for his crime. To a degree, we can make amends for our sins against each other. But King David points out a greater reality. In his sin against Uriah, he confesses to God, against you, you only, have I sinned. All sin, whether against each other or in secret, all sin is ultimately against God, and sin will be called to account. So in the context of our passage today, how does God dwell with the people that continually offend his justice? How are they not consumed? God gives several clues of how this is possible through the person and work of Moses. First, after pardoning Israel, God gives the law through Moses, or in short, the Mosaic law. And to know it, we can just continue reading from here 
through the rest of Deuteronomy. Uh, the first five books, often called the Pentateuch or the, uh, the Torah by the Jews. Within these laws, God reveals a way to dwell with his people by the tabernacle and all the rules and regulations surrounding it. He also provides a way to atone for sin by the shed blood of sacrifice. And we don't have the time to go into all the details, but the law taught the following in a vivid and tangible way. First, Although God was near, his presence was in the tabernacle. Israel's sins made a separation between them. People could not just approach the holy of holies. Second, a sacrifice was only as good as their last sin. Uh, As we read in Hebrews 10, these sacrifices could not perfect them. Instead, it was a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And lastly, the Mosaic law showed that no one could meet its holy demands. In order for sinners to be right with God, someone would have to come and fill every iota of the law. Someone greater would have to come. Another clue God gives is Moses himself whom he sent as a mediator. Moses stood between God and man and worked reconciliation between them. And we see this in our passage. Earlier in Exodus 32, Moses offers up himself before God's blazing wrath. Instead of blotting out Israel, he pleads, please blot me out of your book of life. It says in verse 3, you will notice that Moses stands alone before God on behalf of of Israel. The rebellious people are nowhere in sight. God deals with Israel by dealing with Moses. And finally, in verse 9, God restores the covenant, not because of anything the people did, but because Moses found favor in his sight. You see, the hope of God's people is not in themselves, but it is in another whom God has sent. As we read on through Deuteronomy, even Moses proves insufficient. He knows that this stiff-necked people will break faith again after he dies. Moses doesn't have the power to change their heart, nor would he be around forever to keep contending for them. And as faithful as Moses was, by his sin, he could not take God's people into the promised land. Someone greater would have to come. So why is Moses so quick to worship? Hebrews 3, 5 says that Moses was witness to what would be spoken of later. Moses saw a day when God would resolve this seeming paradox. He saw a day when God would deal with the former sins passed over. And as the Lord descended in the cloud in verse 5, That day came when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Moses, the perfect mediator God has sent for us. As Moses stood alone on that mountain, 
Christ ascended the hill of Calvary and offered himself as our once and for all sacrifice. As Moses cowered before God's wrath, Christ drank down the wrath due to us and cleared our guilt. And as Moses found favor in God's sight, Christ is the beloved son in whom the father was well pleased. By obeying the father, he fulfilled all righteousness and he gives living water without price. As was foreshadowed in our passage today, Jesus Christ is the answer of how God takes sinners as his inheritance. To any who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. God's promises are only ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So as the closing application, let us like Moses bow and worship our Lord. For my friends who have yet to believe, you and I are not so different. We are both sinners that will stand in front of God one day. Knowing who God is, will you stand by your track record, by your merit on that day? As for me, I will confess nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross, I will cling. I urge you, in the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, don't run, but fly to the cross of Christ. Bow the knee to Jesus, and he will give you new life. And for my fellow believers, let us live a life of worship fueled by gratitude towards Jesus. In Christ, we do not have to earn God's love. We live from his love. And that is all the motivation we need to love our neighbors, even our enemies, wherever we are at. So let us pray for ever greater measures of this grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So to close, in the uncertainties and failings of our lives, we can stand on firm ground. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. And it says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let us bow our heads. Oh Lord, you are so good, so gracious. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Even though we deserve the opposite, you demonstrated your love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he has made us your inheritance. Holy Spirit, help us to always marvel in the glory of the gospel. Help us to love you and love our neighbors. And would you help us persevere? Would you preserve us until the day we see you face to face? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.